Yes, hello there and welcome to Join Up Darts. This is an archive show, which means that I'm not here at the moment, but it's, it's all pre-recorded. But it does give you just a glimpse of what's been happening on the iTunes number one business entrepreneur show since we launched. Now, this show is different and you'll hear laughter, tears, shocking stories, real life turmoil, and of course, the kind of success blueprint that will change your life forever. If you want the dream life, then all the answers are here. Now, these are the old episodes, so to get right up to date listening to the latest stuff, then simply search Join Up Dots, click subscribe, and never miss an episode again. And of course, over at joinupdots.com, you can get instant access to our free 12-day podcasting course or loads of amazing free downloads to kickstart your own entrepreneurial journey, all made by my own fair hand. So let's get on with the show. You've got a lot of catching up to do after all. Enjoy. When we're young, we have an amazing, positive outlook about how great life is going to be. But somewhere along the line, we forget to dream and end up settling. Join Up Dots features amazing people who refuse to give up and chose to go after their dreams. This is your blueprint for greatness. So here's your host, live from the back of his garden in the UK, David Ralph. Yes, hello there everybody and welcome to episode 199, almost at the 200, not quite there, but don't worry about it because we have got an amazing guest. That's what you expect on Join Up Darts every single day. We've got a, an amazing guest to share their story, their success, their struggles and honestly today's guest is a man who has a harrowing story but it's a story that you think, man, that, that is terrible. But wow, he's turned this into a positive big time. And as we see time and time again on Join Up Dots, our guests will find their path in life due to a situation that you really wouldn't wish on anyone. But they move from the dark place into the light by perseverance, love, understanding, and most often not curiosity. Now, back in 1989, he had a phone call that changed his life. He'd been advised that his sister had been raped. What could he do to help? What could he do to support his sister? Well, for two years, he struggled to deal with the rape and the effect it had on his life, both as the brother of a rape victim and as a male. He transferred colleges so he could be close to home and his sister during the trial. And once back home with his family, he saw the pain, rage and sadness his parents, relatives and family friends were also going through. The assault of his sister had changed so many people's lives. And it was with this dawning realisation that an assault like this was as much based on lack of understanding of what is the correct way to conduct yourself with someone else as it was a crime. It was the world's lack of understanding of the other person's right of personal standards that was the problem. So could he change the mindset of youngsters, adults and anyone with a sexual urge to realise that there was a way of interacting with each other that just wasn't happening. And over 10 years, he worked, talked, discussed, reviewed and developed the Can I Kiss You platform where he uses humour to break down the barriers of this taboo subject. And now he travels the world bringing the message to the world. As he says... I do feel the work is a calling. The travelling does not get tiring because I know I'm going somewhere to get the opportunity to open minds and inspire a new way of thinking. I get the wonderful honour and opportunity to plant the seed for them to take care of and nourish. He's an author, speaker, father of four and husband to his beloved wife and now he's here ready to join up his dots. So it's with great pleasure that I bring onto the show the one and only Mike Darmish. How are you, Mike? Wonderful. Thanks for having me on today, David. It is lovely to have you on. It's, it's, it's one of those things that normally when I start these shows, we have a kind of quite flippant sort of preamble. Um, with, with yours, it's, it's, I'm grappling with how to sort of proceed into it. So I am going to go the normal route. So um, what is life for you like normally? You are a father, you've got a, a wife. How do you balance all that with the sort of traveling around like you're doing at the moment? Well, you set boundaries and you set rules for yourselves. Uh, what we do is we say, for instance, if I'm overseas speaking, I only go overseas for two weeks at a time so that I'm never gone away from my family for that long. If it's longer than that, then I would make an arrangement. We would only do it if my family could come overseas with me for a little bit of the time. So you set boundaries. I very rarely speak on weekends. Uh, typically, I speak Monday through Thursday, maybe Friday every now and then but very, very rarely on weekends. So I'm home with my family every weekend. I take a complete week off typically in the busiest times of the year each month so that I'm home for 10 days in a row every month. So when you break it down, even though I, I may be gone 100 days a year, 
I'm still home 265 days with my family. So, so where's the furthest that you've been? Because this obviously was a movement that started in America because that's where you live. So where has your reach spread out to? Well, it really depends on what direction we want to go. I've been to the polar ice cap, uh, just literally where I could see the polar ice cap while I was standing at the location, uh, to, the, to Africa, southern Africa, to literally South Africa, uh, to the Middle East, to Asia. So really, we've been all over the world. We've, done, we've spoke on four continents. And a lot of that work is for uh, when we're out speaking for the U.S. military, who has installations around the world. So when you went to the polar ice cap, it was for the military then, I assume, was it? It was. That, that's correct. That was for an Air Force base. That's, that must be a bizarre, bizarre phone call that you get. You, you must have thought that it was a wind-up, first of all. Can you come to the North Pole or the South Pole? Um, did, you, did you think it was to talk to Santa and his elves or something? Well, I, I know when we get these calls that they're coming from the military that they're, they're absolutely legitimate because we do know we have military all over the world. What's interesting is how you learn how that, that works. You know, for instance... There on the North Pole, uh, it's in Greenland, there's no communities. They're, the only way you can get to this location is on a military plane. And you get on it at 2 in the morning and you fly for like eight, you know, seven, eight hours before you land. And so it is an amazing experience. You're there and the, the sea is right in front of you, the water, and icebergs are there. And it's, you know, you're, it's like lava for the ground. It, it was, it's an incredible experience. Is it something, obviously, we're going to touch on your path, but even when you're flying over it, do you kind of think, wow, my life has really, really changed? Absolutely. You know, there are times where I'm on a plane and I just look out the window and you get some amazing views from the plane, from an airplane. And you just say to yourself, you know, I, I am incredibly grateful because this is a beautiful ride to work. You know, the clouds, a sunset. It could be a storm, but you're flying above it and you're seeing the lights. And yeah, you have, every day you, you are grateful for the opportunity you have to travel the world, meet people and share a message that you believe in. Well, when, when you look back on it as well, I said in the introduction, but it's, it's, it's a question actually that I've, once again, I've been grappling with all day to ask you this. And there's no right way to ask this, so I'm just going to ask it. Obviously, your wife... Uh, sorry, your sister went through an ordeal that you wouldn't want on anyone. But it has, in a way, brought a lightness and a joy, and it's found your calling. Is it something that when you look back on it, you kind of think, actually, my life wouldn't be in this good a shape without that, even though I really don't want my sister to have ever gone through that? Did you, do you know what I'm saying? Did you kind of almost feel guilty that you're in a better place than you perhaps would have been? because this incident happened? So the first time I, I felt that guilt, and maybe not the first time, but a, a time that I've always remembered in my life feeling that guilt was when my first book came out, May I Kiss You. And you get your first copy and, and it gets shipped to your house and you're excited. It's your very first book, you're an author, and it already received very strong reviews. So we were pumped up and I'm holding the book and I realize I've got to get the first copy to Sherry. Without Sherry, I'm not doing this work. The book was dedicated to Sherry at the front of the book. So I drove to Sherry's home. She lived about an hour away. And I sat down. And as I went to hand Sherry the book, I started to tear up. And Sherry looked me in the eyes and said, Mike, why are you, why are you crying? This is such a great day. And I said to Sherry, I said, yeah, but for me to have this great day, you had to be raped. And that's really messed up. And Sherry looked me right back in the eyes and said, Mike, I've always believed that this happened to me for some reason, in some way, so that you can make a positive difference and do what you do. When your sister, who is an incredibly strong survivor, says those words to you, you realize once again how incredibly courageous and strong survivors are and how grateful you are to have her in your life. And without her... I wouldn't be doing this work because it was her strength, her courage. It wasn't anything I did after she was raped. It was watching her strength and her courage that made me realize I wanted to speak out about this. And it also made me look in the mirror and say, wait a second, how am I dating? How am I treating partners? And so I did not start from a place of how dare somebody sexually assault because I've always done everything perfectly. I actually started from, wait a second, have I always asked? 
If I haven't asked it, was I making assumptions? And I really did a lot of self-analyzation that made me wake up and go, whoa, how have most of us been taught to date? And that was a wake-up call, all inspired at the beginning by Sherry. It's, it's interesting when you say that because we're not taught, are we? We're not taught how to date. You know, I, I'm a married man. I have been for many, many years. And so I haven't been in the dating vicinity for, you know, for years and years. Thank God I wouldn't know what to do now, Mike. I really wouldn't. But I, I remember when I was a younger man, you just kind of basically saw an opportunity and tried your hand, really. And um, if, it, if it came off, that was brilliant. And if it didn't, then then you went home with a, your tail between your legs. And is, is that a kind of common theme that you see across the world? Is that is that how that, youngsters still act today? It is very much a common theme. And there are places in the world where you, they didn't go back home with their tail between their legs. They've, their culture almost approves of forcing what you want. Uh, there is sexist literally classism but it's sexism and that when you're on a date they think they're above somebody they can do whatever they want to that person there are those cultures too the culture you're describing is what i grew up in that somebody went for it and you know if somebody didn't say no or stop you if you talk to most people they say well then you keep going and you you pull back from that and you go wow think about that for a second if i walked up to somebody on the street and said hey before somebody ever touches you sexually or intimately should you have a choice before they do that? Almost everybody will say, well, of course I should. But then you say to people, all right, but, but if you're on a date and you just go for it in somebody's body, are you actually giving them a choice or are you making them to take action to defend themselves? Well, I mean, they have a choice to stop me is what the person will say. Yeah, hear what you just said. You're going to make them stop you. And so it's very predatorial and it's what people are taught to do in dating. And then people go, wow, that is, that is messed up. You're right. If I just go for it on my partner's body, assuming that they're going to stop me, I'm making them defend their body instead of giving them an actual choice. Would you like to do this? Are you in the mood? May I kiss you? It depends on how far you want to take the conversation or the intimacy, of course, but giving them a full out choice. And so that was really groundbreaking for me when I learned that and realized, why weren't we all taught this? And it was the people who taught me those lessons that made me want to realize, hey, we got to tell the world this. We got to give this simple skill set that can revolutionize real respect and intimacy. So, so what was your path originally? Before this, this crime occurred, you obviously were going through college. You, you had dreams and aspirations. What were you aiming to be? I was aiming to be an actor. I was studying theater in Chicago. And when this happened as a student, and when I received the phone call a few months later, I, I transferred. I wanted to be home. I, I was really struggling to deal with what had happened. And so I moved home, and then I changed majors. I went from theater to business. So my, I went into entrepreneurship, actually. Why, why did while, you do that, Mike? Why did you ch change well, such I, strong direction? Yeah, it was a drastic change, and here's why it happened. I sat, looked in the mirror and said, if I pursue theater, will I be able to have the family that I want to have? Because when my sister was assaulted, it brought home that much more important to me how much family mattered and how much I wanted to have a family and be there for my family. And I thought if I'm in theater, I might struggle to do that. And so I changed to business and then changed to entrepreneurship because I wanted to speak out on this issue. So I started my speaking business in college. So I took the theater and I took the business and I was already an activist on the topic as the brother of a survivor. And I just kept researching and researching and learning and taking everything I was learning and developing this program. And that's how it slowly made its way to where it is today. But I'm struggling to see why you would think that you couldn't have a family being an actor. I don't get why your path was so um, at right turn. Well, here's why. What I was watching was a lot of people going out and auditioning, waiting tables. Keep in mind, I was, you know, 19 years old at the time. Uh, waiting tables. And if they were in a show for three months every night, you're not home. Uh, and so I was looking at that and saying I wouldn't be able to be regularly home. Now, the irony of that, of course, today is that I travel 100 days a year around the world. The difference is I do get to control my calendar versus if I was in a show, I wouldn't have that, that flexibility. Uh, but at the time, I was, I was reeling from what had happened to my sister. And so my judgment was clouded also as far as, you know, what all these thoughts that were going through my head and trying to understand these emotions I was having. And I wanted security. 
And for some reason, I believed business would be more secure than theater. Now, I'll, anybody who owns their own business knows that's mythical. If you go into business for yourself, it's going to be one of the high-risk things you'll ever do. Uh, but I, that was what I thought at the time. It, it's the, the irony really is now you've come full circle again and you're an actor that's created his own show and you take it under your terms, isn't it? Yes, to a degree. I mean, of course, it all depends on when people want us. You know, we, we get brought in by the military, by schools, by universities, by communities on their demand, you know, so it's, um, you're not totally get to choose when you're, when you're doing it, it is up to them, but you do get to choose yes or no. If, if you have family events, you can say no to that and you can be there for your family, which is really, really important to us. And you're right, there's a part of what I do that is very theatrical. There's absolutely no question about that. On the other side now, we do the expertise side of the work, which is consulting and training. So it's not the theater side, it is more the educational side and teaching people and revealing discoveries and skills to people so so let's take you back in time again because we're, we're jumping back and forth but that's the way that we do it on this show because y y your sister went through that and then you changed direction and then you came home and then you started studying business but then there was like a 10-year path from my understanding where you research 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 and one of the things that you came up with was that although this content was out there beforehand the recipients, i.e. the audience, were bored by it. It was, it was content that was dry, analytical, and just left them cold. And so the, the, I suppose the emotion that you're trying to bring into it was just lost and they didn't take home anything. When you decided to do things in a slightly different way, that was quite courageous, wasn't it? Because you decided that you was going to bring humour and a positivity into a subject which many people thought was taboo. Did people warn you off that? Did they say, no, Mike, that's not going to work. You can't go into schools. You can't make light of this thing in front of an audience. So yes, yes, and yes. So I'm going to back us up a little bit. So when I was in college, I started speaking to classes, and I was very passionate. I was an angry brother at the time. And so my passion was there, but that's what I, I was just taking my passion and just like yelling it, not, you know, not literally, but at the world. And I would start working with a few teachers in their classes presenting. And they said, Mike, when you do that thing over there, oh, man, the students really seem to like it. And so all I was doing was listening to the feedback. And what I realized was, hey, I got to tone that down. It's not my audience's fault uh, that this happened to my sister. And so I need to tone that down. And then another professor, Jerry Witherall, said, hey, Mike, you just did that role play thing up there with the students. Oh, my gosh, they really love that. And what I started learning was from educators telling me, here's what's working about what you're doing. And we just kept pulling out what was working and leave that in the show, take out the stuff that wasn't. And what we found was a lot of the humor was what got people's attention. But then having the skill sets to give people to implement in their lives, adding those two together took it to a whole nother level. And so here I was, a college student. Now, keep in mind, I was 22, 23 years old when I was doing this, but I looked like I was 17 or 15 even. And so it was, it was even worse because people are going, we're not going to have some young, you know, punk almost come in <laughs> and talk to us about this. And so what happened was uh, Karen and I, my wife, uh, got married and I realized, wow, I don't think I can support my family doing this. So I did it on the side. I left it full time, did it on the side for about eight years. That took us to 2012. And I was doing it at a conference when a national speaker said, why aren't you doing this all over the country? Well, I gave this person a very quick version of my story. And they said, the world has changed in the last eight years. The world is looking for the message you're, you're sharing and the skills you're giving these students. And literally overnight, we sold our business. Over the next month and a half, we sold our company. And we almost went bankrupt over the next year, but we believed in what we were doing. My wife believed in what I was doing. And that's a, a huge reason we are where we are today because she, she saw the vision and she met me when I was doing this work. So she always believed that this is where we belonged. But, but there's so many people out there that have a powerful mission, they have a vision and they do go bankrupt. What, what was the difference between what you're doing and all those other people? Why have you become a success on it? Well, we could have filed bankruptcy. We were in that 
harsh of times financially at times. It was a matter of staying committed and having a vision. And this is really key, having a unified vision. So it was, it was as tough, if not tougher, on Karen's at night sometimes because maybe she was getting the call from a creditor. Or, you know, we'd built debt on a credit card to do what we did, and she was taking those calls. So having a unified vision is huge. And then being willing to put your voice out to the world. You mentioned earlier, you must have had critics, Mike, who said, this isn't going to work or, you know, do something else and do this as a hobby. I had all of that. I remember one of the first conferences I went to and I told somebody I want to do this full time and they said you might want to keep your full time job. And this was at a conference where people come to learn how to speak and share their voice with the world and somebody's telling me you might want to do something else. It, it's a matter of, you know, if that scares you away, you're probably not going to survive. And so it's good the person says it to you because it's almost a test that you need to go through to see are you committed? Are you 100% committed to what you're doing? And we were, and, and I had a lot of wonderful support around me. I, I'll be the first to say that much of where we are today is because of those who are around us, friends, family, mentors, colleagues, that, that also saw my passion, our vision for what we were trying to do, and kept, kept us in that tunnel vision and believing in, that we could do this and reminding us of, of that. I'm going, to, I'm going to play a speech now, which kind of fits into what you're saying, because you were at the crux. You wanted to move forward. You didn't know it was going to work. Financially, you were struggling. And all around you, you had people saying, oh, I'm not sure this is a good idea, Mike, but still you proceeded with it. This is Jim Carrey. My father could have been a great comedian, but he didn't believe that that was possible for him. And so he made a conservative choice. Instead, he got a safe job as an accountant. And when I was 12 years old, he was let go from that safe job, and our family had to do whatever we could to survive. I learned many great lessons from my father, not the least of which was that you can fail at what you don't want. So you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. Now, I love that statement, and it falls very nicely into literally every episode, because there seems to be that moment with all my guests where they could have said, no, I'm giving up but they carried on going. And it's that passion, isn't it? It's that chance of taking a risk on something you love. Now, you obviously, I can't imagine in the early days you loved it, but you felt strongly enough to carry it forward. Would those words resonate with you that Jim's saying? They do resonate with me. And a real key to that is, do you love it enough to dive 100% in? And what I mean by that, do you love it enough to constantly understand you don't know everything there is to know and you need to keep learning more every single day. A mistake a lot of people make is that they think, I have this passion so the world should listen to me. The world's not paid to listen to you. You have to find a way to get the world engaged so they want to listen to you if you really want to make impact. And often we can make the mistake of thinking, listen to me world, listen to me world. And I did that at times because of my passion. Instead of stopping and going, why should the world listen to me? What am I saying that they should be listening to? What makes what I'm saying any more important than what's important in their lives right now? And coming to that understanding, becoming a, a, as much information and knowledge as you can have on your topic so that you truly can be of service to people versus just trying to tell them what to do. Gaining knowledge, learning, researching, and then being very conscious of how you're presenting yourself to that world so they can hear you. That, that is a brilliant point that you made there because in today's world, there's just noise everywhere, isn't there? And I assume if you look your direction, there's going to be people who are similar to you. So you not only have to get your message out, but you have to do it in a slightly different way. And I, I get a lot of people ask me how I've grown the show so quickly. And one of the things that I say to them is, number one, I, I de deliver a show seven days a week. That always helps. But I go out looking for the gaps that no one else is promoting. And it always seems lunacy that people are promoting in the same areas because who wants to listen to the same thing? You've got to go and find new ears. And so did you do that? Did you deliberately go to places that hadn't been touched before to actually build that kind of groundswell of support in what you were doing? So what I did early on is I went to every single conference or convention where people in the audience would care about my topic 
And I, if, whether it took me speaking for free or they brought me in, didn't matter. I wanted to be in front of the people who cared most about my topic. If I could serve those people and bring value to their lives, they were going to see the value in bringing this information back to their communities, their schools, their military installations. And so that's what early on, I, I mean, we're, I was working weekends where nowadays we, we have different rules now that we did early on because early on I wasn't speaking as much. But I was at conferences every weekend and making sure that I was out there with the people who cared the most. You know, I think you bring up a good point, which is for your show to succeed, you had to work really, really hard. It didn't just happen overnight. You worked really hard at figuring out what, where to go that people would hear you. The gap you just referred to. For me, the gap might have been our approach. So if I could get in front of those audiences that heard, they care deeply about the topic, but they haven't heard this perspective given this way, they might go, whoa, that's something different. Could that help people we know or we work with? And that's how we were serving the gap, by, by being able to do that. You know, when people think of the title of our book, May I Kiss You, they don't think of sexual assault. And part of the draw of that is I'm going to get a lot more people to read a book called May I Kiss You than a book titled How to Protect or How to Stop mm. Sexual Assault in Our Culture. Mm. The gap that we serve is we can hopefully, with the skill set we share with the world, we can help almost everybody in intimacy. And if we help everybody have better, healthier, more respectful intimacy, sexual assault naturally goes down. So, so versus versus yelling at the world, hey, stop sexual assault. Yeah, no, I can see you about that's never going to work, is it? Right. So, so with with your your book, can I kiss you? Does it bring open sort of questions of communication um, and body language and all that kind of stuff? I, I haven't read it, I'll be honest, but does it show you a way of actually conducting yourself, or is it a series of rules that society should buy into? Yeah, so it's a very, very implementable book. In other words, when you read this book, you can get done reading it and have exact skill sets to use in your life. It is designed for some people to read and use instantly in their life. For instance, the first when you open the first chapter, the very first thing you do is take the body language challenge. And the challenge is six scenarios that you're in, and in each scenario it says, here's the situation. And it tells you some body language that's happening between you and your partner. And it asks you, what did that body language mean? And people will say, oh, it meant this, it meant that, it meant that. And the proof there and the challenge is that you don't know what it meant. You made an assumption of what it meant. It could have meant the complete opposite of that. And is right? it just in dating or in marriage and everything? It's, it's actually in any intimate relationships this can be true. right? So I'll give you an example. In marriage, a couple can go to bed right next to each other. Both can be in the mood like they want to be intimate with each other. Right? They're laying right next to each other, they're in the mood, they want it to happen, but neither says anything because they are expecting the other person to start the touching. And they almost get mad that the other person doesn't start the touching because they feel like I'm always the one starting the touching, why aren't they starting the touching? And they, they get angrier, instead of being intimate, they both get frustrated with each other, fall asleep mad, wake up the next morning even angrier that they didn't have sex the night before. All they had to do was turn to each other and say, are you in the mood? Do you want to? It would have happened. It, that, but nobody, that's marriage, nobody though, isn't it? Nobody skill set. Is yes. That, the amount of times you wake up the next morning and you suddenly realized it could have happened the night before, but you just didn't twig. And that's just it. And so whether you're dating or you're in marriage, the skill sets we're teaching, are unfortunately, are just sets that, skill sets we weren't given. And we all need to be able to implement them. I mean, why did I get so passionate about this? Because when I saw the skill set, I asked myself, why didn't I learn this sooner? And so I wanted to make sure we got it out to the world. That's what our organization does. But this applies to all ages. I mean, we work with people in the military who are 55, 65 sometimes. And we work with 18-year-olds. And they're all saying the same thing, walking away, going, why didn't somebody give us this sooner? And why didn't we get the skill set to give to our children if they're parents? Why has this not been discussed before now? Because that, that, to me, is fascinating because I kind of assumed that it was going to be teenagers and youngsters. And so for somebody who was like 65, you, you kind of feel that they're a lost cause. They're always going to operate the same way. But you feel, find that, that that's different. You can actually present the content to these guys or ladies and they will actually go, wow, 
I've been on this planet for 65 years. I've been sort of actively sexual for maybe 50, 55? No, that, that'd, be too, that'd be too young. Um, 45 years, we'll say. And I can still change. Is that what you're saying? It is, it is powerful how many people own their ability to change at any point in their life. Yeah, we literally will have somebody come up to us after a training or a presentation and say, hey, the, the little bit you did about the married couple in bed, that is so my wife and I sometimes, or that is so my husband, or that's so my spouse and I at times, because this affects all genders, all sexual orientations. Uh, wow, did that really impact me. I'm going to go home tonight and talk to my partner about what they want, how we can use our words. And yes, there's they, because here's the thing, no matter how old you are, most people want to be a great partner. Most people want to be great at intimacy for themselves and their partner, regardless of age. So as long as it's age appropriate, you want to have the skill set to be able to do that for yourself and your partner. So, so how did you kind of come up with the content, Ben? Did you just sit in rooms with people asking their opinions and stuff? Or and how, did you be, how did you get your rules that went into the book? Well, early on, I heard a speaker come to my university that I was attending at the time. And his name was Joel Weinberg and Joseph Weinberg. And when he spoke, it was the first time I heard anybody talk about this topic. And it was months, just months after I had moved back home and I was mandated to be at this program. And he was talking about stereotypes, you know, roles men play and myths about sexual assault. And it opened my eyes and made me realize well, I could do this. I could use my voice. And so I went to him and said, I want to speak out. And he said, well, if you're serious about it, get a hold of me and I'll meet with you. And I got lucky. He happened to live an hour away, even though he spoke around the country. And I met with him and he gave me some great information. And then I created a program that fit where I was at in my life with my peers at that time. And that's where I started. That's where it began. And what I would what I would do throughout the years is because I was in the classrooms, I was on the campuses, in the schools, hearing from the parents, I was trying to listen to what was happening versus what research was showing. Because research is five, 10 years behind often versus I'm on campus and students are telling me, well, here's what's happening. And I go, ah, okay, now I've got the pulse of what's happening. Let's talk about that. So when we work with any age audience, we never come in with, here's what you're doing wrong. We do the opposite. We come in with, all right, tell us what's happening. And by doing that, you're always in their world. It's not about you. It's about them and where they're at, regardless of age, relationship status, their own moral beliefs. It's where they're at. And you learn that. Now you can have a discussion. Have, have you become numb to the sort of information? I imagine if I was you, I'm putting myself in your shoes. To begin with, I would have these conversations and I'd be a bit shocked actually by what people were telling me. And then after a time, I reckon I would get numb to it. I, I, are you like that or are there still things that come up and you kind of go, wow, that's a new one. I've never come across that one before. Every now and then you'll get, oh, that's a new one. I've, I've never come across that before. But there are things that, there are things you can hear every day and you're never numb to it. Uh, example would be when a survivor comes up to you after a presentation and says, sitting in today's program was the first time I had ever felt like I was strong and courageous. That never ever is the point of where you're numb to that. That inspires you. That reminds you why you're doing the work you're doing. You know, or somebody comes up and says, hey, I saw you two years ago. And after that, I started asking and it's totally changed our relationship. That never numbs you. Whenever you're hearing real examples of people living with respect, survivor strength and courage, every, every time you hear it, it's exciting. It's, it's why you do the work. And the moment you get numb to that, you probably shouldn't be doing the work anymore. I, I think I would struggle. You're so passionate. It's your calling that... I would be having these conversations because obviously you can't stop sexual assault. It's, it's, it's never going to stop. It's always going to be out there. But you can bring awareness to the issues that lead up to it as you're doing and you're doing remarkably well. But I think because you're so passionate to remedy it, every time somebody comes up and says, I was a victim, I was a victim, I think I would actually, I actually feel quite emotional now saying it to you. I think I would think, damn, that's another one I've let down or it's another one I've missed out on. Did you, do you feel that? Do you, did you feel like there's, there can be more than you can do or you're just happy with what you are doing? 
Well, there's something early on. When my sister was first assaulted, I felt the guilt that many family members and friends do that somehow I should have stopped it from happening, even though I wasn't there. And what you learn is that if you keep beating yourself up with that, it does you no good. It doesn't move anything forward. So what can you do? Try to help everybody else going forward. When a survivor comes up to you after a presentation and says, as a survivor, this meant so much to me. If you sat there and went, oh, we have another survivor, this is, this is horrible, you'll be missing the point. The point that survivor is saying is, today I am telling you, I am sharing with you, because they, are, they feel strong, they feel admired and respected. And knowing that that survivor feels better about themselves, because of something they discovered inside themselves, not because of me or at all, it's about something they discovered about themselves during the presentation, that's when you sit there and go, that is so cool that they are going to walk out of here and know how incredible they are. And it's sad they, that our culture didn't let them know that before today, but to know now they feel stronger and maybe they're going to go to counseling or they're going to talk to a therapist or they're going to share with family and friends who can support them. There's, I mean, how much more could you ask for to think a survivor is going to walk in a room who is not comfortable talking about this, has felt bad and almost blame themselves because of culture and what culture does to survivors. And when they walk out, they're going to feel more empowered they're not going to blame themselves. They're going to realize that they, they deserve to have a choice. You look at those two parallels and you say, I'll, I, every time I'll take the survivor who walks out with more strength, more empowered. It was always inside them. They, they discovered it during the presentation. Now, that's a brilliant answer. And that totally changed the way I was thinking a couple of moments ago. So, so many people out there, they do keep quiet, even even though it's a crime and they should report it. They, they stay mum about it, do they? Well, because of what our culture, unfortunately, does to survivors. What if you, you know, every major media case that tends to occur, the first thing people say when they hear about an assault that, and when I say when they hear about an assault, when they hear about an assault between two people who tended to be like in an intimate situation, they, they were alone on a date, they're in a relationship, they were at a party. So we're not talking about the assault where the ones everybody pictures, the stereotypical one, which does happen, somebody's walking down the dark night street and they're attacked. That happens about anywheres from 10 to 15% of sexual assaults occur by a complete stranger. That's it. 85% of the time you've either met this person earlier in the night, you've gotten to know them, or you're in a relationship, or there's someone in your life. That's the majority of the time. And so what happens is when we hear the cases of the stranger, people in our society tend to have compassion for the survivor because they say that's awful. When they hear the case of this celebrity was dating this person and the person dating them or the person who went back to their room that night said that that celebrity sexually assaulted them, then people play a whole different reaction to the survivor. And it's very sad. They do things like, well, what did that survivor expect when they went up to that room at two in the morning? Well, nobody stops and asks themselves, do you realize what you just said out loud? You just said the celebrity you're defending that the person who went up to their room should have expected the celebrity to force themselves on them against their will. They should have expected that to happen. If, if you believe that, why are you defending the celebrity? Why aren't you saying that is a sick person to bring a stranger up to their room and try to do that to them? But that's not what people do. People go, well, you knew when you were flirting with them. You knew when you were drinking. You knew when you went up to their room. And all of the excuses lack logic. For instance, someone will say, well, if somebody's drinking, you know, if you don't want to be sexually assaulted, don't drink, which is like one of the dumbest things you could ever say to somebody. The rapist raped the person. The alcohol did not do that. The rapist did that. The rapist took advantage of the fact this person was vulnerable, a state of mind because of the influence of alcohol. They, they used that as a weapon. And what people do is they use that as blame on the survivor. And it should be the opposite. We should be looking at the rapist and go, how dare you? How dare you do this to somebody? And, and that's because of all those pressures that we watch when cases happen in the media, it can become very difficult for survivors to come forward. It, it's, it's bizarre though, isn't it? Because if you've been violated, you should be able to speak up from it. But I, I can see that totally. Why would you want that pressure of media attention? Um, especially as you're saying with the celebrity ones. But 
the, the kind of well, even even if it's not celebrity, let's say that it's in no way to do with a celebrity. You go to school and you come forward and say, "This person over here did this to me last night," and suddenly all your friends are involved because they're all intertwined in all these circles. So even if there's no celebrity, it's incredibly complicated when people start blaming survivors and it makes it horrible because now there's group behavior blaming the survivor. They're almost taunting the survivor to shut up, to not talk. How dare you? How could you say this? That person's such a good person. And they make all these assumptions as if behind closed doors, they know that person and they know exactly what happened that night, even though outside of the survivor and the person who did it, they don't know that. Is, is it harder for and it shouldn't be harder, but I'm just going to ask a question in a way. Is it harder for a male to come forward and say that they've been raped more than a female, or is it just equally as hard? Well, and so hard is a tough answer because it's, it's so difficult for many survivors to come forward, regardless of gender or sexual orientation. What, what will play in differently, often for those who identify as males, is that culturally people say, well, a male can't be sexually assaulted. He must have wanted it. And they'll play that against male survivors, which is horrible. Uh, now, I, I, when you look at it, they really do a very similar thing to women, but they don't say women can't be sexually assaulted. But they finish the sentence the same way, she must have wanted it. right? They said, a guy can't be raped, he must have wanted it. Well, with women, they say, well, she chose to drink, she must have wanted it. She went back to his place, she must have wanted it. There, but the must have wanted it comes out against all genders, all sexual orientations, Ridiculous concept. Look, if somebody wanted it, why didn't you ask them? Why didn't you let them say yes, completely sober? Why, why not have intimacy that does not need alcohol or drugs? And why don't you both agree you want to do this completely sober and have all the fun you want to have that you agree you both want to have? But that's never what you hear about in those cases because that's not what they did. They forced themselves on somebody or they tried to take somebody who was in a vulnerable state of mind and use that as a weapon against the person. Well, with, with your children, you've got four boys, I believe, have you? Yes. You've got four boys. What ages are they? Uh, so the boys are ages from 15 to 19. Okay, so they're, they're prime, or literally all of them are prime age that we're talking about, really, um, when they're really sort of coming into their own. Are, are they, you know, t totally clued up to your way of thinking? Have they bought into it 100%? Did you know whether there's a peer pressure around them that makes them act in a different way? Well, first of all, as a parent, there's one thing you always know. You never have total control over any human being, especially your child. Mm. You, try, you do your best to guide them and to give them as much guidance as possible. Uh, our sons absolutely know why we do this work. They know why it is important to us. They know my inspiration and they love their aunt. And so they, they get why we do what we do. Uh, do they live in a culture that goes against much of what we're saying? Yes, they do. And are they surrounded by that on a daily basis? They are. And so you hope that they make the right choices in life, just like you hope every child out there makes the right choices in life. And you try to give them the best guidelines you can. In the end, everybody, everybody listening to this and everybody's children listening to this is their own person. And so you just want to have, try to give as much guidance as you can to help them make the best choices when they do make certain decisions in their life. Because we're, we're kind of like polar opposites, Mike. I've got four girls and a boy. And my girls will go out and they dress up, obviously, and they go off to nightclubs and quite often there's alcohol consumed. And as a parent, you hope that the best will happen, but you do live on, you know, eggshells all, all the time. Um and, and but the good news is that they go out, they have fun, and if they're, you know, if they're age appropriate and they want, they choose to drink alcohol, they have the right to do that, and they should be able to live their life that way, right? They should be able to, your daughter should be able to enjoy their life just the same way your sons would be able to enjoy their life if they went out to a club or a bar. They should be able to enjoy that life equally. Absolutely. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, absolutely, but it's the other people, right, isn't it? Right. And so what happens is people say, wait, 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 wait. No, no, you need to protect your daughter so, so that, that this doesn't happen to them. So tell them not to drink. Tell them not to dress a certain way, which means they don't have a, a right to live their life freely and equally as other genders, for instance, males. And that's messed up. So it's, you know, it's really great hearing you say, hey, I've got a son and daughter. They like to go out. They like to have fun because they should all be able to do that.
But what I would worry about, it's like my, my son's uh, 12 and he's desperate to learn to drive a car already. And I said to him the other day, I said, look, I could actually teach you to drive a car in five minutes if there was no other people on the road at all. You could just pretty much control that car, drive along and be worried, you know, not worried that you're going to hit anything. But it's the other people you've got to worry about. And the situation with my daughters is the fact that, yeah, I know they're sensible. I know that they are capable of, you know, going out and having a good time and probably drinking a little bit too much every now and again. But it's the other people, isn't it? It is the the, the guys out there, it's the ladies out there that aren't heeding your message and aren't they haven't got that kind of moral compass inside them. And that's why it's important that every parent out there let their children know that if anybody, anybody ever does anything against your will without your permission, sexually, intimately to you, you will be there for them. You will be there 100% for your child because you don't know what's going to happen in this world. And the one thing you do want is for your child to have the gift of being able to go to you and have you fully support them because that's what they deserve. Versus gift, it's what they deserve. What most parents make the mistake of doing is they're so afraid for their children that they scare their children about what could happen and that just stops their children from talking to them. I'll give you a classic example. A lot of parents will say, hey, if you ever go out and somebody ever touches you against your will without your consent, I'll kill them. If anybody ever hurts you, I'll kill the person. And people talk that way. Well, what does your child see? Your child is watching you freak out about something that, as far as they, you know, has not happened yet. And they're sitting there going, whoa, you're already flipping out and I haven't told you anything. What would you do if I really did come to you? And the child learns real quickly, I'm just never telling them. Look at how they're reacting. I don't want that in my life. That's going to make it more difficult. So parents need to stop the scaring their child and instead open the door to their child. And how you do that is you look your child in the eye and say, if anybody ever has or ever does sexually touch you without your permission, without your consent, I am always going to be here for you. Always. And focus on your child, not the revenge, not the perpetrator. Did you not find it interesting when when you look back on your life, and we're going to play the words of Steve Jobs in a moment because it is the theme of the show, but when you look back on your life and you were obviously on that path to become the actor and in a strange way you've ended up as an actor, an actor with a mission, that your business direction that you turned into the entrepreneurial route was the key thing that actually got you here because everything that you've evidenced today, the fact that you um, had this this idea you reached out to the chap who was a mile uh, an hour away and went and sort of researched and then you hustled and you networked and you did everything is pure entrepreneurial spirit isn't it do you think that was always in you or it did take this catalyst to actually bring you into the entrepreneurial four so that was always in me so when I was young, I was the kid running around trying to do people's, mow people's lawns for money. I was the one doing the newspaper routes uh, when most kids were not doing that. And I don't mean that I was special in that way. I was just the kid out there at five in the morning running around in the, in the blizzard snow trying to, to deliver the newspaper because I, I wanted to have this business. Uh, and so, yes, that's always been in me. I, I've owned, along the path, I had a few businesses because that entrepreneur spirit is something that's always been inside of me. It was a matter of where I would direct it, where I would really belong. I always say that most entrepreneurs are serial entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs until they find their true love. And then they become a business owner. And a classic example, that is Steve Jobs, right? Very entrepreneurial, very entrepreneur, and then gets to Apple and what happens? He builds a large company and dives 100% into Apple. He was then a business owner very innovative one and then he would go on and work with pixar and do something he would then step out after it was built but for a long time he was apple and that's what he lived and breathed and in many ways it's what he lived and breathed as a profession forever and because he finally found his love he didn't need to be doing a hundred things at once and i think that's true of a lot of entrepreneurs uh that that they once they find that true love bill gates same thing you could make the same argument walt disney same thing sam walton same thing uh, they want to be there because they see that's where they they can make the biggest difference in the world. You, your um, 
entrepreneurial spirit when you was a child isn't a surprise because the tagline to the show is connecting our past to build our future and it seems evident after 200 episodes that more often than not the key spirit the thing that really drives you on when you're up against the wall and you've got this vision and you've got this passion is closely linked to the small child who would just do it for nothing because there was no money involved and you're very much that person if, if we took you back in time which we are going to do later would you be very similar to the young mike of sort of 10 years old i would still be a hyper crazy 10 i was i couldn't stop talking super hyper i was the kid in the classroom the teacher said quiet down you're talking too much or too loud uh absolutely i mean it is funny that much of my living now is sharing my voice because my voice did get me into trouble uh, as far as talking too much and stuff sometimes in school. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't like any you know, bad trouble, but you know, I, would, I would definitely uh, get noticed uh, sometimes when I shouldn't have been noticed for my voice. Uh, that's part of me. You know, one of the things, a discovery that I went through in, recently in the past year uh, doing a program called Strategic Coach, there's a great book out there called Unique Ability. And it teaches you how to figure out what unique ability is. And a lot of times, for example, somebody would look at a speaker, maybe someone like myself, and say, oh, your unique ability is speaking. But what you discover is that unique ability was true of you when you were little, when you were 20, when, when you're 40, and it'll still be true of you when you're 60. And my unique ability was not speaking. My unique ability was revealing discoveries. And that's still what I want to do today, right? I want to get up and help audiences reveal these discoveries that they can use in their life. When I used to be in theater, you get to reveal discoveries to the audience, right? They're, they're revealing the story. Mm. Uh, when you're on stage now, you're revealing skill sets to hopefully change people's lives. And so that unique ability has been there since I was very little. I would love to be the one that got to tell somebody some exciting news because I would get to watch them have a discovery. Uh, in my personal life, I love travel, especially with family and friends because I get to watch them have a discovery with me. And I love that experience. And so same thing for me now. You'd said, hey, does it get, you know, maybe some people say, does it get tough when you're on the road or does it get tough when you're traveling so much? Not when you get to see people have discoveries that they're going to use in their life. That's what drives me. It, the unique ability is the core essence, isn't it? That, that's what everybody's got to get because I, I've, I've been in sort of therapy through these shows and I say it loosely but I do when people are talking about their lives you sort of obviously sit here and reflect on your own and when I was a kid when I was at school I used to get in trouble for talking exactly like you at school and it was always you know David is more interested in having a conversation than his schoolwork and I kind of almost want to go well look at me now you was right but <laughs> my kind of unique ability now I think isn't talking I think it's listening and I think that is my skill that I've developed over a period of years, maybe decades actually, is that ability to to obviously have a conversation but listen harder than I've ever done. And I do it very well here. And people say to me, oh, you know, it's your talent. It's funny, I can't do it in my marriage. I, I, can be, <laughs> I could be with my wife. I don't hear a word she says half the time. I don't know if my mind is elsewhere or whatever. But once you know that unique ability, it's a big stepping stone, isn't it, to where you want to be? You know, David, it's a critically important stepping stone because, for instance, for me, you realize speaking whatever way I can reveal discoveries, it could be powerful. So whether I'm speaking or writing or today by being on the show and we're just having a conversation. And, and here's one thing that you do learn and you just brought it up. It's be critically important in what I do that to be able to reveal discoveries, you have to, you must be listening to your audience, your readers, your listeners. You're, by saying that, remember I said if I walk into an audience and I tell them what they're doing wrong, nobody's going to listen mm. to me. I have to go into an audience, ask them questions, and listen very intently about where they're at so then I can tailor what we're doing to their world. Listening becomes critically important to being able to help reveal discoveries for people. And so I, like you, I found the same thing. While I'm known for being a talker, what I do best is being able to, or what you do best too, is that idea of to be able to have these discoveries occur, you have to be able to listen first, then engage in the conversation. It's, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it? It's, it's so in us, but 
the majority of people struggle to find it. And that, that's the, the kind of eye-opener, really. When you do find your thing, it's there all the time. And you, you hear it. You hear it all the time. Look for your passion. And when you find it, it will be within you. And you kind of think, oh, just rubbish. I hate that statement. But it is, it's true. It's annoyingly true that we, we just forget what we should be doing somewhere along the line. And we go into jobs. We get salaries. We get mortgages. We get family. And we, we had the essence of what we should do early on. But for some reason, it goes out the window. Well, and I think here's why. We were never taught our unique ability as a child. We might know that we have passions as a child, but we're not, they were never having the discussion about what our unique ability is. And it's the combination of the two that's critically important. If I just tell you to follow your passion, but you don't know what your unique ability is, so you don't know what this skill is that you're going to share with the world, you don't know what to do with it. You tend to get lost. You tend to try a million different things until that one lands. And I took, like I said, that was me. I went through that path, absolutely. It's when you start to combine the two and go, hey, here's my unique ability and here's my passion. Here's how they fit together. That's when the light bulb goes off. Well, let's play the words of somebody whose light bulb didn't just go off. It exploded and he left a, a mark on the world that probably just by the quotes he made will never be forgotten. This is Steve Jobs. Of course, it was impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college, but it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. Again, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever, because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart even when it leads you off the well-worn path, and that will make all the difference. Do those words ring true to you, Mike? Absolutely. I can, and I, and I do because I think it's important for all of us to do, to be able to reflect back on the journey that's gotten you where you are today gives you so much appreciation and gratitude for what you have in your life, for the people you've met in your life, for the people who've come and gone through your life, the mistakes you've made and hopefully how you've grown through that and matured through that, you, you're never going to see that going forward, like, like Steve Jobs said. But when you stop and take a breath and look back, the discoveries are all around you about your life, about the people in your life, about how you present yourself to the world. And I certainly didn't always do that as well as I should have. And looking back, you see those lessons and realize, I don't want to do that again. I want to be more present. I want to be more vulnerable. I want to be there more for uh, people truly as myself and truly to best support them. Looking back allows you to see that path and see where, where, where your steps connected and it made total sense and where you, man, you took a misstep there and that's a lesson you, you don't want to repeat. You're basically saying that every day you want to feel alive, aren't you? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, every day you want to make it count, right? I remember I went on a trip with my son. It was a Boy Scout camp, and it was 14 days in the wilderness of the mountains of, um, of New Mexico here in the United States, and you are literally out in the woods. It's you, and there's a group of about eight or nine of you, mainly teenage boys with a couple parents. And every third day you get to a, a, a stationary campground where there's actually, you know, running water and stuff. And at the end of each day, you would hike five miles some days, 10 miles on other days with 60 pounds on your back and up 4,000 feet elevation. I'd never done anything like that before. And at the end of every day, I would just start, I'd get into my tent and I couldn't fall asleep. And I would just start journaling. And I would journal for pages and pages and pages. And I remember telling myself, I want to live a life worth writing about every day. Because that experience gave me that. It gave me a life worth writing about every day. And that's something that was just a, a year ago, a, you know, 16 months ago. But are, are we living a life that's worth journaling about every day? That, uh, that, that's, that is the statement. That is the title of this episode. And do, do you feel that? Do you feel that every day you've got enough to write a page on? You know, there's days I don't. And that's okay because I know now that I want that. And so I don't, wanna, I don't want the next day to be a re repeat. Because you're not going to always hit the goal. Right? You're going to have days where you don't live that life. And that's okay. The fact you know you didn't puts you at a whole different place, that fact alone, than you were a year before when you never even considered it. 
Because that means if the few days you go, you know what, I didn't meet that goal today. You're only noticing that because typically you do. And so you've put your life in a better place with that question. So just before I send you back in time to have a one-on-one with your younger self and bring this show to an end, what is the legacy that you want to leave to the world? If, if you could have it on your gravestone, what would it be, Mike? When it comes to what you want in life, ask first. Perfect. I'm going to play the theme tune now, Mike, and this is when we send you back in time to have a one-on-one with your younger self. And if you could go back in time, what age would you choose and what advice would you give? Well, we're going to find out because this is a sermon on the mic and when it fades, you're up. Here we go with the best bit of the show, the sermon on the mic. The sermon on the mic. Hey, Mike. This is the older you. You're, you know, you're 18 years old, and I'm you now. Many years forward, I'm I'm 44, and uh, here to just share a little bit. You know, you've you've led a life that's been exciting. It's been fun, and it's been a journey. And I just want to share a few things with you for going forward to make that journey more powerful, more memorable, more meaningful, and maybe most importantly, more fulfilling. And that is, you know, you grew up with the mentality of don't care what the world thinks about you, say whatever you're going to say and, and get your message out to the world. And that, that sort of an energy you brought into the world. And what I would advise is ask yourself that if you're not caring what the world thinks of you, is it possible the world's not hearing you? And to really take into mind how the world is listening to you, how the world is hearing you, and how are you projecting yourself that leads to those answers? Are you willing to be vulnerable? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to fully support people for where exactly where they are right now? You don't have to change the world all at once. and You don't have to change any person. You can accept people for where they're at, support them for where they're at, and help them the way they want to be helped going forward. And when you do that professionally, when you, if you choose to get on a stage and share a message with people or write and share a message with people, if you can listen to the people that you're in front of, hear the world they're in, and help best support them with where they're at and what they need at that moment, you'll have the opportunity to live a really fulfilling, meaningful life. And keep doing it. Keep questioning yourself. Keep asking how, you're, how the world's hearing you. Keep asking yourself, how can you be a better you? How can you be more loving? How can you be there more for your partner? How can you be there more for your children, your parents, your sisters, your cousins, your best friends? And, and be willing to surround yourself with the people that get you and those who don't. Be willing to stretch your boundaries so that you realize you learn as much, if not sometimes more, from those you absolutely disagree with than those who are like-minded. And be willing to, every day, live a life worth writing about. And when you come up upon a challenge, be willing to ask for help. You want to try something new in your life? Be willing to ask the right people to help you along the way, to support you, to guide you. You want to go after a new business or a new idea or, or you want to share something with the world. Be willing to ask how to do it. Like, what do I need to do? And then do be willing to try what people tell you. You don't have to reinvent wheels. Try what people tell you and implement as much as possible what they teach you. And with that, always be willing to ask. And when you ask, respect the answer. Hear them completely, 100%. Ask first, respect the answer, and have a blast living life. 
Mike, how can our audience connect with you, sir? They have a couple ways they can connect with us. One, they can go to our website, which is datesafeproject.org. That's you're going to go on a date, you want to feel safe, and you don't want to feel like it's a project. datesafeproject.org. Another way they can find us on social media, we're on Twitter at datesafeproject. Also, they can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash datesafe. And they can even find us with video on YouTube at youtube.com slash datesafeproject. So everything's datesafeproject. The only exception is Facebook where it's datesafe. So they can find us all those means. We love being able to answer questions, be able to serve in any way we can. So definitely we have resources on the website for parents, for teenagers, for couples, for military, for schools, for universities. And so we invite them to, to come say hi and check out the website. The, the last question, just before I say goodbye to you, is how is your sister now? Well, my sister is doing fantastic. One of the things that I share before I leave stage with many audiences is that one of the most common questions I get is how, what you just asked. How is Sherry today? Today, Sherry has been married 19 years, has five children, has an incredible family life, and she is a, a phenomenal example of the courage and strength inside of survivors that when people hear that rape ruins survivors' lives, they need to pause and say, yes, rape and sexual assault is a horrific crime. But the fact is survivors are incredibly strong individuals who can lead amazing lives. And Sherry is an ultimate example, a role model of a just that, a strong, courageous survivor living an incredible life. Wonderful news. Mike, thank you so much for spending time with us today joining up those dots. And please come back again when you have more dots to join up because you are doing remarkable work. And I do believe that by joining up the dots and connecting our past, it's the best way to build our futures. Mike Darmish, thank you so much. Thank you, David, for allowing us to share our dots and how they lined up over the years. We greatly appreciate everything. And, and you, you're a lot of fun and ask some great questions. So thank you very much. David doesn't want you to become a faded version of the brilliant self you were once to become. So he's put together an... Thanks for listening to today's episode of Join Up Dots, brought to you exclusively by podcastersmastery.com. The only resource that shows you how to create a show, build an income, and still have time for the life that you love. Check out podcastersmastery.com now. David doesn't want you to become a faded version of the brilliant self you were once to become. So he's put together an amazing guide for you called the eight pieces of advice that every successful entrepreneur practices, including the two that changed his life. Head over to joinupdots.com to download this amazing guide for free, and we'll see you tomorrow on Join Up Dots.